Can you tell I'm enjoying all of your texts in? Um, I want to remind as well those of you that are in the room this morning, if you happen to have a phone running on 5G, and that's the newer phones, you will need to turn off your cellular data because that will come through on the microphone. And some of you heard that last week at home. We had some late arrivals to church that didn't get the memo. So eventually we'll get this information out and we'll just get in the habit of turning them off. If you're on 4G, you can just put your phones on, do not disturb. But um, unfortunately, the new phones interfere with our signal here. Um, let me get some shout outs here to all the people. if I can find it. You like it? Okay. Well, good morning, Mark Yells, Kim and Mary Halverson, the Kukas clan. Someone sent me an image to Google Maps. So you're somewhere, and I could click on that now and say hi to you, but is that Brian, maybe? No, it's a 425 number. Okay. Um, someone else is watching from home because of the snow. David and Annie, good morning to you. Emily Callen, Phil and Diana Younghammer. Did I say it right? I hope so. Okay, I'm getting some affirmation. Phil had knee surgery on Wednesday, so I hope you're doing well, Phil. Steve and Kathy Gannett, Ellen Pincus, Bob and Wendy Crozier, Marissa Beulah. Somebody's here. I, I don't know who that is. Debbie Treefry, James Sullivan, um, Alexa, Alicia are there. Aurelia, wake up. What a middle schooler. Uh, Chris Treefry, Doug and Stacy Higley, Christy and Josh Canahan. I'm here. That's a 509 number. Uh, Nathan and Deb Larson, Johnny Lay, Jen Huguenin, oh, that was my test to see if it would come through last night. Okay, so that's, I'm sure that there are more of you. We aren't taking attendance. We just want to celebrate um, this reality that there are many of us gathered this morning. And so um, that's really fun. So let me launch into our announcements for this morning. First, a huge thank you, thank you, thank you. Last week, I announced that I sort of biffed it, and I didn't send an email out to um, our donors, many of you who partner with us for Cedar Way and the food pantry that we have there, the grocery distribution. Um, by Monday morning, that list was completely covered. And so I'm just so, so thankful for all of you that did that. And Ann Herbig, I know you are just so good to me in that knowing my day off is Monday and she will usually just grab that whole list that's left over and it's just a blessing. Thank you for letting us go and love people the way that we get to by simply putting groceries in the car. And um, one of the probably hardest things that I saw this week and Wendy Crozier was, was with me as well, but there was a mom that pulled in and she had just lost her housing and didn't have anything. And um, the school was working to try and get her in a hotel for a couple of days and help her sort through that. But she was going to be sleeping in her car this week. And so she said, I can't take refrigerated items. And can we just try and pack some of the food around my stuff? And you could tell that she was completely embarrassed. And so we tried to, um, to love her in a dignified way. Like, hey, no problem. Where do you want things? And just 
make her feel normal in a situation that is very unnormal. Um, and putting things in the car, I just looked and there was a baby carrier and there was a four-year-old and there was an elementary school student sitting in the front seat. And it was just heartbreaking to go, that is her reality right now. And um, I can sit in a place where I go, oh, I am so, so blessed. I am so blessed. But we have this opportunity to give dignity that to people that are facing hard things. And... Um, and so thank you that we get to go into those places and to, to love, and even without necessarily saying, hey, this is from Jesus. And they eventually find out we come from a church, and it's just a beautiful thing. So thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing us to continue to show up and to bless people in those really small ways. And they're, like I said, working on housing, eyes are on that family, um, and I'm guessing that by now they are, they are in a shelter. So um, that's super uplifting, right? <laughs> okay, <laughs> there's real hard stuff in the world. Also, you can sign up for church. Terrible segue. It's a terrible segue. Um, but when the snow lifts, I mean, we're here. Thankfully, Jason and I, we have some vehicles that do well in the snow. We have a few people who have those and have picked up our worship team this morning so that we could all be here recording, coming to you live in your living room. Um, but we love for you to sign up for church. Um, we'd love to see you in person. It is not too full here. Don't hold back because you're afraid you're going to take somebody else's place. As soon as you're comfortable being in person, please come. There is nothing quite like being together as the body of Christ. So, um, And then the last thing is we love it when you fill out your online communication card and just kind of let us know you're here, what's going on in your life, can we pray for you, um, responding to the message that you hear, whatever, because we aren't able to gather in person. It's just a really beautiful lifeline for us as your staff as we are um, trying to figure out how to love you well and to, to meet your needs. So love to hear from you. Again, you go to brookviewchurch.com and you, f you click on contact and then that online communication card pops up right away. That's it. Okay, the end. You guys, today we finish up this five-week series that we've been in on Scripture. And so all throughout, we've been using a particular definition for the Bible. And I, I want to say again, there are lots of other really good definitions, um, lots that are true and, and good and right, but I have found this particular definition really helpful. So here it is one last time. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And today, as we, as we close this thing out, I want us to think about the unified story a little bit more. 
Because you, you go into scripture and you read all kinds of sort of the micro stories all throughout. But those stories come together to tell a much larger macro story. And I want us to think a little bit about how this works. And to begin, I, I want to look at like the central conflict that's in the plot all through the macro story. Okay, the central, any good story, it has some sort of conflict. And, and, and in the Bible, it comes to us very early on. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we're, we're told of how God created. And it is this beautiful, poetic description of, of all creation, especially humanity. But in Genesis 3, we get the conflict that will then drive the rest of the story. And here it is. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. And if you're just kind of reading through this, and you just read Genesis 1 and 2, this comes like a jolt, totally out of the blue. Wait, what? Who is the snake? And, and where does the snake come from? And, and what is the snake doing in our story? All you know is that he is more crafty, meaning intelligent and devious, like all combined. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, the serpent is saying... God's lying to you. He's, he's holding out on you. He wants to, to limit you. He wants to prevent you from experiencing the fullest and best life. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Please notice, what's at stake in this story is trust. Okay, this is an assault on trust in God, in God's love. The, serpent, the serpent's implication is God has a hidden agenda. You shouldn't trust him. You should accrue your own knowledge and become your own God, and that will be way better. The snake encourages Eve to redefine good and evil for herself rather than trust God's love and wisdom as it has come to her through his word. And here we, we face the ultimate nature of temptation. At its core, all temptation is an attempt to redefine good and evil for ourselves rather than to trust in God and his love, goodness, and wisdom. At its most core, temptation is simply an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. And instead, we believe that something or someone else will better bring our deepest happiness. But the primary issue is always trust. Who or what do we actually trust? And yet when it comes to faith in our culture these days, the conversation seems to hardly ever be about trust. And in our culture, instead, the conversation is usually about something else. People rarely ask one another, hey, do you trust in God? 
or do you trust God? What they ask is, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Right? These days, most of the conversations sound something like this. Do, do you believe in God? Well, well, I believe in God. Or I don't believe in God. I'm not like all those people that you know, believe in God. Or, or I'm, I'm going to heaven because I believe in God, but I feel really bad for all those other people that, that don't believe in God. Or I don't believe in God, but I'm, I, I'm going to go to heaven anyway because I'm a good person and I just don't need to believe in God. Right? I mean, this is what we hear. And so the issue at hand in our culture seems to be, who believes in God? But in Scripture, I just want to point out, this is not the big question. It's just not. In the Bible, the most vital question isn't, do I believe in God? It's, do I trust God? Will, will I seek him, and will I love him, and will I trust him, and will I obey him? When, when people talk about believing in God, what they often mean is, sure, I believe that there's something beyond. I, I believe in, as the country music stars love to say, the man upstairs. I, I believe in, like, I, I believe in, sure, I believe in the existence of, of God. But see, you can completely believe in the existence of God without ever trusting in the goodness of God. And I love how this is explained by James, okay, the little brother of Jesus, he was writing in the very early years of Christian faith to people who, who thought that right beliefs were the key to the whole thing. And he wrote this. He said, uh, and this is so true, he said, he said to them, he said, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Okay, even the demons believe God is real. The main question is not, do I believe in God? The main question is, do I actually trust God? It's about trusting that God is always working toward my deepest happiness. Because if that's the case, then I would want to do what he says. I would want to live exactly how he directs as much as I possibly can. But throughout Scripture, this is the central struggle. Like all through the Old Testament, this is the issue. This is the main issue for the individuals. This is the main issue for Israel as a nation. In fact, what you see is the Bible is basically Genesis Chapter 3 on repeat, until we finally come to Jesus. And, and we see in Matthew 4, where, where Adam and Eve and all of humanity has failed, Jesus did not. So let's look real quick at that famous scene in Matthew chapter 4. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, by the serpent, by the snake. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, and this is Genesis 3 all over again, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And notice how Jesus answered. Jesus answered, it is written, and that's going to come up a lot in this dialogue. It is written, and next comes a quote from Jesus from Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written. Okay, again, here we go. For it is written. And now, you guys, Satan is about to quote scripture to Jesus. This is Psalm 91. It's like, I see your Deuteronomy and I raise you a psalm. 
And it's fascinating how well-versed the devil is in Scripture his, and his uncanny ability to manipulate it. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, which is a line taken totally out of context. Jesus answered him, It is also written, and here comes a quote from Deuteronomy 6, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Just this one little compromise and you can get everything you want. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, and one last quote from Deuteronomy 6, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now, there is a lot going on here, and we do not have time to unpack all of it. But Jesus and the devil are not just in a dialogue here about trusting God. In addition, this is a conversation about whether or not to trust Scripture as an act of trusting God. I mean, Jesus was a a teacher of the Bible of his day, the, the Jewish scriptures, what we now call what? The Old Testament. Jesus read the scriptures. He knew the scriptures. He taught from the scriptures. His mind and imagination were saturated by the scriptures. His identity itself and his vision of life at its best, like human flourishing, it was all based on the scriptures. And I said this at the outset of this series, but I want to say it again. The reason many of us have made the Bible central to our lives is not because we have an odd penchant for ancient literature. I mean, if that's if that's you and I, Andrea Fan, I love you. Keep reading it because of your fascination with ancient literature and Jesus. Um, That's awesome. But for most of us, we we read it because we love and have come to trust and have decided to apprentice under Jesus. And at an intuitive level, we know that like Jesus and the Bible come together. And I would argue that there is no version of legitimate apprenticeship to Jesus that does not have a central place for the Bible and does not read the Bible as scripture. I just want to revisit a quote that we saw in week one from Andrew Wilson, a British guy. He writes, ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who was God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I I don't trust in Jesus because I trust in the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I have decided to follow him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unanswered unpopular. So Jesus has this incredibly high view of Scripture, and his approach to treating it with the greatest reverence and then choosing to live under it humbly is what we call biblical authority. That just seems fitting, doesn't it? It seems fitting because this is how many people tend to feel about biblical authority. 
I mean, can we be honest? For some of you, all I have to do is say biblical authority, and your palms start sweating, and your blood pressure starts rising, and, and you start squirming. So let's pause for a second and think about how, how averse we, we really are, just what's natural in us, our human bent, and certainly within our culture. I mean, why is it that so many of us kind of have this tendency to take issue with this? Why are we so nervous about biblical authority? Well, in Western culture, like okay, you're talking about European and North American, the resistance to biblical authority is just, I would say, it's just part of a, a larger resistance. Because in the West, here's the thing, we are opposed to all authority. Are we not? We're opposed to every kind of authority. I, I mean, think about the language we hear in our culture on the regular that gets celebrated. Okay, you should speak your truth. Wait a minute. What? You should speak your truth. You should be true to yourself. You do you. Or the ubiquitous bumper sticker with the fist. You guys know what I'm talking about? Just says what? Resist. I, mean, I don't know what we're supposed to resist, but okay, baby, I will resist, you know? In the West, we have almost an allergic reaction to the whole concept of authority. We don't trust the police. We don't trust the government. We don't trust politicians. We don't trust teachers. We don't trust our parents. We don't trust anybody who's in authority. So trusting the Bible is just one of many things that we approach naturally with skepticism. And if you've like been sheltered by Western culture and you haven't really gone outside of it and experienced anything else, you might kind of assume that this is how all people are everywhere. But it isn't. Like often in many places like the Middle East or, or the Far East, all over Asia, people actually hold a, a much greater respect for authority. Like their parents or their grandparents or civic leaders and on and on. So how did the West become so different from the East regarding authority? And of course, this is like really multifaceted and super complex, but let me just give you one factor in all of it. And here it is. Sigmund Freud has had a huge impact on how we think. Really one guy, Sigmund Freud, really? Yes. Some of you know that before I was a pastor, I was a psychology major, let's go. And that does not at all make me an expert on Sigmund Freud, okay? But I did learn a fair bit, and it is stunning how many of his ideas have seeped into the popular beliefs in our culture. Like, for those of you that are familiar a little bit with Freud, and, and I know many of you are, at least a little bit, he, he, he taught, here's kind of a summary of part of what he taught, he taught that all neurosis is due to either A, the repression of desire, okay, from an internal source, or the oppression of desire from an external source. So he said that authority, such as the state or a teacher or a parent or the Bible or the church or the police or whatever, authority is there to keep us in check and to make society work for all. So in his view, authority serves a legit purpose. The problem is that we are oppressed from outside of ourselves and we are repressed from inside of ourselves. And therefore, when our desires are shut down, it leads to neurosis. And so the solution to all of this in sort of a quasi-Freudian phrase is to be true to yourself. 
Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You be who you are. You speak your truth. You do you. Go do whatever it is you want as long as it doesn't, quote, harm the rest of us. And and this is how most of our culture thinks and operates, right? So to us, the idea of authority in general sounds suspect. But the idea of biblical authority of living based on an ancient library from the other side of the world rather than by your own inner desire or your own intuition or your own inner sense of right and wrong, that doesn't just sound bizarre to us in our culture. It sounds dangerous. But I want to come back to the philosophy that our culture tends to live by instead. The alternative, the cultural, the preference for our culture is, hey, do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm the rest of us. Problem is, agreeing on what harms the rest of us is really tricky. And this is part of what is dividing our culture in half right now. I mean, have you been on social media? I mean, like, think about it. We just don't agree on this stuff. Let me, let me ask some questions. Does doing whatever you feel like sexually harm others? This is, whoa, whoa, this, this, these are rhetorical. Does not wearing a mask harm others? Does not wearing a mask when you're walking with your wife in the outdoors and you rarely encounter another person that comes within 20 feet of you, does that harm others? Does supporting the police right now harm others? Does viewing pornography harm others? Does not recycling harm others? Does buying clothes from companies that use child labor harm others? How about driving a gas-guzzling vehicle? How about buying non-fair trade coffee? How about talking religion in your workplace? Do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm the rest of us. That turns out to not be a very simple idea at all. And by the way, I probably just offended everybody. Okay, come back. Come back to me. Let's talk about biblical authority. This is not a simple idea at all. Do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm the rest of us. Because it all depends on what you actually believe is necessary for human flourishing. Well, what is it that enables people to thrive and, and to experience the greatest degree of life? Because anything that blocks that, whatever that is, it harms people. It all depends on what you actually believe about human flourishing. And this leads me to a, a really important question. What is biblical authority? When we talk about giving the Bible authority, what do we even mean? Well, there are different kinds of authority, as we all know. And in the West, we are most familiar with structural authority, which is the ability to coerce or control, like from the top down. So it's the authority of an org chart or a military rank, or it's located in position. It's a coach or a teacher or government or the police. And we we obey those in authority because if we don't, we will face the consequences. But this is not necessarily built on a relationship of love and trust. Mostly, it's that we don't want to get fired from our job. Or we don't want to get a ticket. Or we don't want to get arrested. 
which is, is why often when there's no authority around, we just do whatever the heck we want. And when there is a massive, almost like complete absence of structural authority, then what you get in culture and society is looting and rioting and exploitation of every kind. It's a huge mess. And so there is a time and there's a place for structural authority. But there are limits to this kind of authority. Structural authority can't set your heart free. All it can do is sort of force you to stay inside some boundaries. But spiritual authority, spiritual authority functions in a completely different way. We could define spiritual authority as an access point to reality, meaning to the way things actually are. Spiritual authority is, is, is located not in a position. I mean, often people with spiritual authority, they have no position. But in, in accurate knowledge about the way things really are, about the human condition, about what it, what it really means to be a human being and what enables human beings to thrive. Now, we live in a culture, right, that says, well, those questions are, are unanswerable. So you decide what's right for you and I'll decide what's right for me and you just do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm the rest of us. But central to the writers of Scripture is the assumption that there actually is moral knowledge in the universe. That right and wrong are a very real thing. That moral laws govern the universe kind of like physical laws. Like the writers of scripture insist that just as there are natural laws to the universe, the laws of gravity or thermodynamics or whatever, there are also moral laws to the universe. There are relational laws to the universe. There is a way to engage in relationship that works and there are ways that do not. There are spiritual laws to the universe, and they are just as real as the physical ones, and they exist independent of our opinion, the same as gravity or whatever physical laws we want to pull in there. This is why so much of the Bible comes to us in the form of story or poetry, which are just statements about reality. It's just pictures of the moral and spiritual laws of our universe that are painted for us rather than commands. You know, most of it is stories, poetry, that kind of thing, rather than commands like, do this, don't do this. You think of some of Jesus' most well-known teachings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that a command? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Is that a command? The last shall be first. If anyone comes to me and drinks, he will never thirst again. Those are not commands. Just statements about reality, about how things actually work. And Jesus saw himself and his teaching, along with that of the scriptures that came before him, as an access point to reality. And we looked at this a few months ago, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us like his manifesto on how best to be human on how, how to pursue human flourishing in its fullest. And at the end of that sermon, the crowds we see were, were like utterly stunned. I mean, check out the reaction to Jesus and his teaching. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had what? Authority. And not as their teachers of the law. The, the rabbinic style of the day 
was just to quote another rabbi that had come before you. Your authority was vested in those who had preceded you. And so they would say like, well, rabbi so-and-so said, and then they would quote whatever it would be. You guys, Jesus did not do that once. You never read Jesus saying, well, rabbi so-and-so said. Jesus would just stand up and Jesus would say, truly I tell you. And then boom, he would, he would just name reality. He, he would put language to the way life actually works. He'd paint a picture with words of reality and it would ring true to people. The authority of Jesus was rooted in the truth of his words and in his life example. I, I love Eugene Peterson's tra- uh, translation of, or kind of paraphrase of those last two verses. It says, when Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying, quite a contrast to their religion teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. The most potent kind of authority has nothing to do with a title or a position. The most potent kind of authority comes because you speak truth and people hear it and it corresponds with reality and it corresponds to how you actually live your own life. And when you think about it, Jesus had zero structural authority. He was not in the Jewish Sanhedrin, right? He, was, he, was, he wasn't in the Roman Senate. There was no military or law enforcement at his back. In fact, when people resisted him or they resisted his teaching, he didn't like call down fire from heaven and incinerate them. And he didn't write them a parking ticket. And as far as I know, Jesus never gave anyone an F. What would Jesus do? Well, he just let him go. Okay, that's your decision. Like, that's totally your call. Jesus has so much respect for human dignity and freedom. But just like people in his day, we have to decide, do I trust him? And if so, will I follow him? Will I trust him and his trust of the scriptures? Like, do they best lead me toward human flourishing? Now, understood correctly, in other words, interpreted correctly, do Jesus and the scriptures lead me toward human flourishing? But a big part of this, and this is what we've been talking about all these last five weeks, a big part of that equation, a huge part of it is interpreted correctly. Because you can make the Bible say anything you want. And it turns out interpreting it, interpreting it well, can be really challenging. And this leads to a question that has come up a lot around our church recently, in the last few weeks. The question is this. Why isn't the Bible easier to understand? I mean, really, why isn't the Bible easier to understand? And throughout this series, I have really enjoyed processing this, um, these questions and this stuff in in our life groups. These days, I'm leading three groups every week. I know, it's good, I know. And over these last few weeks, man, I I have really loved the conversations around Scripture. But in this last week... As we talked about the challenging book of Revelation, this question came up again. It was just like really on people's minds. Why isn't the Bible easier to understand? I'm like, if, I mean, really, pastor, if, if God wants us to get it, why is it so hard to understand and figure out? 
And you guys, I have, I have so many thoughts on this. This could be a year-long series just on my thoughts on this. Far too many for today. But I will say, interestingly, Jesus was basically asked the same question one time. Not about Scripture as a whole. He was asked that question about his parables and his use of parable stories. Jesus would often use stories or parables to teach spiritual truth or moral truth. But so many of them were, were, were puzzling to the crowds, but they were also puzzling to the disciples, right? So one day, the disciples, they come to him, they pull him aside, and they ask him, Jesus, why do you teach that way? Why not just talk more plainly? Let's, let's read his response. Now, this is from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, but I think it gets to the heart of this. I love this. It says, the disciples came, came up and asked, why do you tell stories? Why do you use parables that confuse people? He replied, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. Not everybody has this gift, this insight. It hasn't been given to them. Whenever someone has a ready heart for this, the insights and understandings flow freely. But if there is no readiness, any trace of receptivity soon disappears. That's why I tell stories, to create readiness, to nudge the people toward a welcome awakening. In their present state, they can stare till doomsday and not see it. Listen till they're blue in the face and not get it. I don't want Isaiah's forecast repeated all over again. Your ears are open, but you don't hear a thing. Your eyes are awake, but you don't see a thing. The people are stupid. They stick their fingers in the ears, in their ears, so they won't have to listen. They screw their eyes shut so they won't have to look, so they won't have to deal with me face to face and let me heal them. I mean, I love the gist of this. Jesus says, whenever somebody has a ready heart, the insights and understanding, they flow freely. So what matters is the condition of the heart. So like we said at the outset of this series, heart posture matters. It really matters. Like, do we come to Scripture with open hands or do we come with clenched fists? Are we open to God speaking to us and even changing the way that we see the world? Or do we come to it demanding that it agree with what we already believe? Many in Jesus' day didn't come to him and his teaching with open hands. They stood in the distance with folded arms and, and fists clenched. And for those folks, they never got it. They never saw it. And they missed out on something amazing. It was right in front of them, and they missed it. But I want to point out something about all of this. The disciples, generally speaking, I think we could say, fairly say, had the right heart posture. Right? I mean, mostly. Nobody's perfect. They're in process. But they came with open hands. They came with humility. They came with curiosity. They came with reverence. And yet, you guys, did they understand Jesus' teachings? Like on, on first hearing, did they just get it all? Not usually. And so if you read the Gospels, you see that what happened is they only understood bits and pieces. Like most of it just went right over their heads. Even with the right heart posture, they still struggled to understand most of what Jesus was teaching. 
But what you see is, and here's where the heart posture comes in. What you see is that they just kept listening. They just kept asking questions. They kept showing up in humility and curiosity with open hands. And eventually, the pieces start, started coming together. And eventually, it got clearer and clearer and clearer for them. I was talking to a young man in our church this week. And he said, okay, so I don't get why the Bible is so hard to understand. Why isn't it easier? I mean, I, I, I get that heart posture matters. I get that. But I sit down to read, and I'm often totally confused. My heart is open. It's right. I know it is. I want to understand. I want to hear God speak. I'm open, and I'm humble, and I'm curious, but I still don't get it. And so I said, yeah, like, I get what you're feeling. I have felt it many, many times. But you want to have an open heart for one day or one week or one month and read the Bible and then have it all unlocked for you. That's not really how it works. If you come to the Bible with an open heart, in that same way, for let's say another 50 or 60 years, I guarantee it will make so much more sense to you than it does right now. Your eyes will be opened bit by bit, year after year, until you see all kinds of things that you cannot now see. If you trust Jesus and, and trust Scripture as he did, and you keep showing up day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, God will blow your mind incrementally. And I know that because that is exactly how this has worked for me. And so this young man that shall remain anonymous said, wow, okay, yep, I get it. That makes so much sense, Dad. <laughs> you guys, this is so hard for us. It's so hard for us because we live in a right now culture. You, you can get anything, almost anything you want, like right now, right? We live in a right now, and so it's like, God, my heart posture has been good for a whole five minutes, so how come you are not unlocking all the secrets of the universe? You guys, Scripture will, will come more and more to life for you, but you have to be willing to look at it for a long time. And I'll just tell you what Scripture has been like for me. And um, I've used this analogy many times over the years, but I don't know that I've ever talked about it from church itself. When I was a kid, I used to do jigsaw puzzles. I had um, dyslexia, and my mom, I think, was told that puzzles would be good for me, that it would help my brain begin to recognize patterns or something like that. And so anyway, I would sit at this uh, puzzle table. Like We're talking like nine, nine, ten years old. And um, in the same room, we had a, a turntable. You guys know what that is? Yeah, a record player. And, and I would put on, you guys, I would put on my, at the time, my favorite record. ACDC, Back in Black. And I had to wear big headphones because the music would make my mom feel angry. Yeah, so not me. I loved it because nothing brings peace and calm like you shook me all night long and hell's bells. Uh, I mean, clearly, I was a pastor in the making, right? 
But I would sit around for hours putting together these like really big time intricate puzzles. But, but here's the thing about puzzles. When, when you start, when you first start, it is total chaos. I mean, you dump it out on the table and it is, it is absolute chaos. It's just madness. But you keep looking at it and you keep working at it and pretty soon you make a few connections. And most people, they start with the edge pieces, right? The borders. Because those pieces are a little easier to identify. And so it's easier to make some connections. And then when you have the border, you start grouping pieces together by color. But it takes great patience to do a puzzle like that. The only way that it's going to happen is for you to actually sit there and look at it for a really long time. And it might take, there might be stretches where you don't make any connections for quite some time. And it's just not that exciting, except for the ACDC. Now, in the same way, um, I, I didn't grow up in the church. And when I first came to the Bible, I was 20 years old. And you guys, it was total chaos for me. It was like someone dumped out a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle on a table. And what happened for me is that it only began to come together bit by bit over a long period of time. I've, I've now been following Jesus for 28 years. But you guys, I am just scratching the surface of what can be known. The Bible is a well that runs deeper than I think any of us could ever imagine. And I've drawn a bit of water from it, but there is infinitely more there to draw. And I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a Bible expert. You're like, you're not? No, I'm not. I have met some guys that are Bible experts, and then I, I was humbled. And I'm like, oh, that's a Bible expert. I'm a dumb pastor. We rely on the Bible experts to explain to us so we can explain to you. I'm learning all the time. And when I make a connection and when, when somehow those pieces come together, it is an awesome thing for me. I absolutely love the experience of that. I love learning and I love sharing with you guys as I'm learning. But I have had to show up to the Bible for 28 years. And that's the thing. You have to be willing to sit there and look at it for a long time. We were talking about this with one of my online groups this week. And a woman in the group named Mary, Mary, this is for you, um, she said something awesome. She said, you know what, I, I really like the, the jigsaw puzzle metaphor. Okay, but, but here's what I'm thinking. When you do a puzzle, you see the big picture on the box before you have to take any of the little pieces and put them together. And she continued on. She said, well, well you look at the mess of pieces, you really aren't sure how each one fits with the others. Now, you can see on the box what the picture will be when it's all done, and you know how it's all going to turn out. You see the big picture, even if you haven't quite worked out how the little pieces will come together and fit together. And I just want to say, Mary, that is brilliant. It's so good. I love that. Like, I really, really love that. Because, you guys, the story of Jesus is just like that. You get to see the big picture. God loves us, and God is working, and in Jesus, he's healing everything, and this world is a broken mess as a result of people not trusting Jesus again and again and again, but in Jesus, he is winning us back to him. In Jesus, what is God doing? He's rebuilding trust. He's not using structural authority. He's using spiritual authority. 
and he will overcome injustice, and he will overcome evil, and he will, he'll heal it all, and we will experience joy that we can't fathom. You guys, that's the picture on the box. Can you see it? And so while you try to fit all of the, the little pieces in Scripture together, you have to keep in mind somehow they work together somehow to make up this brilliant, stunning, beautiful picture. And so don't ever get frustrated as you're caught up in the little pieces and you're having trouble making connections. Because if you do that, what happens is you lose sight of the bigger picture altogether. And that leads me to one final thought for this series. And it's this. Guys, I really believe there is nothing else in the world like Scripture. I have stayed with it and stared at it for 28 years for a reason. Because it is powerful in a unique way. This past week, also in one of my online groups, I just saw it at work. And I've seen it so many different times in so many different ways. But this week, I saw it in work, at work. This past week, um, I had a couple in, in, in one of my online groups that's just had a terrible time in COVID. And, and while, while COVID is, I mean, universally difficult on everybody, for some people, it's a lot harder than for other people because of their unique circumstances. Can we agree on that? And this couple has had to deal with way more than their fair share of crud. Stuff that I, I, can, I can't even possibly imagine. So on the night of, of group, this last week, during the day, they had gotten some terrible news. And so we, we, we started our group like we usually do with highs and lows, right? Tell us something good and tell us something tough from your week. And when it was their turn, this woman, she tried to speak, but she just broke down. She just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and she was trying to talk through it, and she was embarrassed, and she's, and this is, you guys, this is real stuff, and it's, it's stuff that I can't imagine. There's so much disappointment and so much fear over what may come next, and it's real, and eventually, she kind of got out most of what's going on, and her husband filled in the gaps. We're good at that, and I'm actually shocked that they, they made it to the group based on, like, emotionally where they were at. But I'm so glad that they did. Because we then dove into Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This stunning picture of the throne room of God. And, and what we did is we read it three different times and did a short reflection after each reading, which is called, anybody? Lectio Divina or Danny DeVito, depending on what group you're in. And you guys, God met her. God met her in that in such a powerful way. And what ended up happening is he reminded her who he is, and he reminded her who she is, and then he pointed her back to the picture on the box. And her reflections, you guys, were absolutely breathtaking. And they were so deeply personal, and they were healing for her. And by the end of the night, she was smiling and laughing and joking and even giggling at times. There was like this peace that came in and invaded her soul. And you could see it in her face, and you could hear it in her voice. 
You guys, there is nothing else in this world like Scripture. Now, not all encounters are like this. But if you keep showing up, and if you organize your life around staring at it, it can do something so powerful in your soul. It can fill you with life in a way that nothing else can. And it does that in different ways. Sometimes it helps you stop hiding in guilt. Sometimes it gives you encouragement that you need. Sometimes it guides you to take a whole new direction in your life. Sometimes it reminds you of of beauty that you once knew, beauty that you forgot about but really need to remember. Sometimes it grounds you in a season of overwhelming chaos. Sometimes it gives you a word to share with someone that you love. Sometimes you feel God's presence in a powerful way. Sometimes you get chills just over the sheer goodness of God. Now, of course, you don't get all of those things every time you encounter it. You just don't. But if you show up again and again with open hands, it's actually stunning what God can show you and what God can do in you over time. And I have seen this again and again in my own life and in you guys. So I just want to close with a question for you to process, just as we kind of wrap up this entire series. Ask yourself, how can I take a step deeper into Scripture? And there are so, so many ways to go about engaging Scripture. And and you need to start wherever you are. You need to start where you are, not try to replicate what somebody else is doing. Start where you are and figure out what is the next step for you. There's so many different ways to have Scripture come in and water your soul. A lot of times we get locked into like a vision of one thing. You guys realize how many ways there are? Let me just give you a couple. Well, you can go to church. Right? Or you can watch online. And you can hear the, the Scriptures taught by a Bible expert. Or, or not so much. But you can hear the Scriptures taught and discussed. You can sing along during worship songs that are built upon the ideas and the images and even the words of Scripture. You can incorporate worship music into your daily life. You you can listen around the house. You can listen in the car. You can listen wherever you go. You can join a life group, and you can talk about Scripture or the ideas of Scripture with others in community. You could connect with a friend that you trust and enjoy, and you could maybe read something together and talk about it. You could read a book that is based on Scripture and maybe is on a particular topic that's relevant to your life right now, but it is based on Scripture. You could read it all by yourself, or you could do it with a friend, or you could read it with a group of people. You could engage in some kind of regular Scripture reading habit. Uh, Many of us at Brookview have a rhythmic plan for reading, and we use something called soaping, right, to, to process, to read and journal. And if you're somebody who doesn't know anything about that and you want to know more about that, I would just say, reach out to me, email me, text me, whatever you need to do. And I will either connect with you myself or connect you with someone else who can help you learn how to do that. Or you could use some other plan for reading and, and maybe reflecting. You could buy a daily devotional and follow it in some way. And there are many, many good ones that are out there to choose from. But my point is, and this is just a few things, my point is you need to take the next step that's right for where you are. And what, for me, when I was first checking out Christianity, I started with church. 
like just going to church. And just the step of doing that versus having done absolutely nothing was actually blowing my mind. Just going to church with regularity was a big deal in my life. For some of you, that might be a really good place to start. Some of you are really moved by good worship music. You guys, there's so much of it out there. It's all over the place. And so maybe you just need to work that into your life a little bit more. Now, some of you, you're not in a, in a life group, and maybe it would be good to be in one. Maybe that's a natural next step for you. Or some of you could engage in regular reading on your own, or maybe modify what you're already doing. And for some of you, you just started doing something that is really challenging for you. And you have already taken a massive step in the right direction. And for you, you just need to stay with it. Just keep doing what you're doing. But I just want to encourage you. You guys, there is nothing else in this world like Scripture. It can shape your life, and it can lead you to incredible beauty. But you have to be, a, you have to be willing to seek it with humility, and you have to keep engaging it over a really long period because that's how it works. Father in heaven, as I think about just the reality of the availability of Scripture to us, and it is challenging and it's hard, but you've given us tools, you've given us each other, you've given us things like church, you've given us things like books that explain it, you've given us so many resources. And what's beautiful about all of this is we're not, we're not just sort of left on this earth wandering around in the dark with no light anywhere. You've given us some light, some ability to, to see and to make sense of what's going on around us and to see that, that at the end of this, this tunnel that we're in, there's, there's unbelievable light. And we can live with hope and we can live with peace and we can live in relationship with you. And Father, I just pray that more and more and more you would ground our church, this community, in the scriptures. That you would make us wise, that you would make us good, that you would make us kind, that you would make us loving, that you would make us courageous, that you would make us as individuals and as a community together the people you want us to be. And you would help us to go then and be the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. God, would you use scripture? Would you ground us in it? Would you immerse us in it more and more and help us as individuals, wherever we are, to take whatever the next step is and to encounter you as we do, as we come to you with open hands.